I got the horse right here, the name is Paul Revere, and here's a guy that says if the weather's clear, can do, can do. This is Bill Duncliffe, and this is Can Do, a podcast devoted to horse racing. Some history, some handicapping, and some humor. Our guest today is Bill Walsh. If you name a job in racing, Bill has had it. Mutual clerk, judge, worked at and directed various horsemen's associations, simulcast off-track wagering supervision, and finally, director of the Department of Racing in the state of Arizona. Bill, did I, did I cover all that? You pretty much did there. I had it all ready to spiel out, but you did a good job of it, Bill. <laughs> so, Bill, if you don't mind, you started out in Buffalo. Uh, you're, a Buffalo uh, you're a Buffalo Bill, so to speak. <laughs> take, yes, I am. Take us on your journey through racing, because it, it sounds like a little bit of a Chuck Berry song traveling all across America. Well, I was, a, I was a school teacher back in the day in the early 70s, and uh, it just wasn't meant for me. And so uh, I was looking around. I'd been a racing fan for years, just as a pure fan. And I've uh, been going to races from the mid-60s. And uh, by about 77, I had my fellow teaching, and uh, I had seen a, an article in the uh, Racing Farmer, a couple of them, about a new program that they were starting at the University of Arizona and for racetrack management. So my wife and I talked about it, and she knew I didn't like the, the teaching that much, and there were other reasons for leaving Buffalo, but we just packed up uh, the family. At that time, there were just two small children. One was about uh, four, and the other one was about a year and a half, and we we moved west to Tucson. And uh, I went through the school at the university, and uh, from there I did uh, an internship at Arlington Park one summer, and then the following summer I went back to work for Arlington, and then I moved down to Sportsman's in uh, Chicago, working in the HBPA, the Horseman's Organization there. And I got a job with the National Horseman's Organization in Rockville, Maryland, and uh, uh, stayed there for four years, and then moved down to the state of Washington with the HBPA again, and worked at a couple of tracks up there, and then was recruited to be a Horseman's representative in uh, Birmingham in uh, 1987, and moved down there, and absolutely loved Alabama and uh, and the people there, and uh, but the track was not successful. And we moved on, ended up uh, in Arizona, and I went to work for the Department of Racing in Arizona, and started out overseeing the off-track betting uh, locations in the state, and moved on, became a state steward for the you know for the state, and then uh, eventually uh, they hired me to be the uh, the director of the department, which is kind of my goal all along when I started back in the 1970s to, to either run a racetrack or run a department of uh, racing. And I, I got that and spent three years there and then retired almost four years ago and uh, enjoying my retirement right now. <laughs> Bill, you mentioned uh, Birmingham, Alabama, and that's something uh, I think a lot of fans probably don't remember, their short-lived experiment in uh, horse racing, which I know started out with a lot of high hopes. Yes, it did, and uh, it was one of the reasons why they were able to get a lot of people down there and uh, uh, from different areas. A lot of Kentucky people moved down there, both the horsemen themselves and uh, management, and uh, it, it looked like a perfect spot for racing. It had one problem. You couldn't run on Sundays, and at that time, that was important. But they, but they felt like they could be successful, and the problem was that uh, they did not really check out the market that well. You know, the anti-gambling aspect of it in the South was 
overwhelming, and uh, people weren't used to horse racing, per se. And uh, they had a great first year there uh, uh, from, a, from a racing perspective, but uh, from a gambling perspective, the part that needs to support the track, it didn't work out well. But, uh, Alabama was really a good place, but it was not good for racing. And it eventually went downhill, and now I think I don't even know if they still run the the Greyhounds there. Uh, they do all kinds of uh, simulcasting now. Oh, they still do simulcasting. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't <laughs> yes, that. they do. Yeah. Okay. So, Bill, in your travels, like we all are used to running into characters at the racetrack, uh, tell us about a couple that you ran into that were particularly memorable, if you don't mind. <laughs> well, I had, a, I had a friend of mine whose uncle uh, uh, is about as neat a character as you would have ever run into. Uh, his name was Bill, Uncle Bill. But we called him Mitch because he used to drive back and forth between Buffalo and Detroit all the time. <laughs> oh, Mitch Ryder and whatnot. And uh, Mitch was a beauty. Uh, we I went to the track with him on multiple occasions, and I can I'll give you one example of one of his moves. Was uh, we decided to leave Buffalo in the morning to go to Finger Lakes, and that's about a uh, 70, 80 mile drive down the uh, the throughway. And uh, we uh, moving along fairly well, like in the 90s. And uh, and the next thing we know, we had a trooper come upon us and. Uh, pull him over, and uh, he comes up and introduces himself to, to Bill, Uncle Bill, and Mitch just says to him, look, hurry up, just give me the ticket, I'm late for the double already. So, uh, <laughs> obviously, we missed, yeah, we missed, we missed the, uh, the double, because the cop wasn't in that big of a hurry, the trooper wasn't in that big of a hurry thereafter. Well, I'm going to have to remember that line about hurry up and write the ticket, because I'm going to miss the early double, that's a great <laughs> No, there was only one double in those days. Oh, that's right. <laughs> oh, you're talking about the dark ages now, only yeah, one double. Yeah, wow. yeah. I just I remember the days when there was just a daily double, and that was it. Um, I spent most of my time really at Fort Erie, because uh, uh, I lived right across the, the border uh, from there. I could make it from my home to Fort Erie in about 20 minutes. And, uh, and so I, I followed Canadian racing, the Ontario racing, for a long, long time, and they had really solid racing at that time. It was comparable to a lot of the better tracks in the U.S. So Fort Erie is an interesting topic because now, I mean, people only hear about it like for about three weeks a year, right, when there's this little hiccup in the Woodbine schedule. Um, right. So uh, how do they maintain that facility the rest of the year? Is it is it all like simulcasting and off-track wagering? Yeah, you know, falling away from it, I, I tend to think that they probably don't. I think it probably just, just is uh, quiet year-round. It used to be they had, uh, you know, up until about 10 years ago, they had uh, year-round uh, slot machines in there. And that really, you know, came along and helped the, you know, the racing but then the uh, the province uh, moved that out of there and just put all slot machines into just basically casinos down in the Niagara Falls area, which is now about 20, 25 miles away, and it killed uh, it mm-hmm. killed racing at Fort Erie. They, they only run, I think, a couple days a week now, and like you say, they get the hiccup in the summer when they run the, the Prince of Wales stakes, and that's about it. I mean, they run all summer, but... Nobody pays any attention to it anymore. Absolutely gorgeous racetrack. It was at one time. It's, it's old, but the uh, the infield was gorgeous. They ran turf racing and turf racing for two-year-olds 
well before the uh, race, the tracks in the states came around, around to it, and uh, it was a, uh, it was always, always a lot of fun to watch. And I saw some uh, pretty good people there. Sandy Holly was one of the riders there when he was young, and he rode in Canada for three or four years before he moved down to fame and fortune in Southern California. So, Bill, just turning slightly serious for a minute or two, there's one ongoing discussion in racing about the use of medications, right? Various jurisdictions have various rules, and they look at various substances differently and tolerances. Every once in a while you hear someone uh, proclaim the need for a national racing commission. Uh, You know, is that practical? Can that be done, do you think? No. The the, the states have control of... uh, of the racing, and they don't want to give it up uh, for a variety of reasons. The one thing that I think that they, if they would come together on, it was just for testing purposes only. If the federal government would get involved in it just for the sake of testing, then they would have uniform rules throughout the states. Uh, that would, to me, that would be the one uh, area that uh, I think that we, they could all come together on. But even there, they fight about it. Because you know the smaller states, you know they have they claim, especially with their horses, they have different needs than the the larger ones like New York and California. The horsemen have too big of a say in some of these areas like Kentucky and California for openers, and uh, so they would stop it. Uh, the the states don't like to see their uh, their their money sent out out of state to say out of state facilities to do the testing. Some do anyways, but a lot of them don't. It's just there's too many people involved in, uh, uh, in the game, you know, owners' organizations, trainers' organizations, Association of Racing Commissioners International, which I think might be the best of them. There are too many of them in, involved. They all have a little bit of what they want, and nobody can seem to bring them all together. So, Bill, medication is, is an interesting topic, too. Um, you know, one of the things I think experience shows in any sport is that once rules are established for steroids, amphetamines, whatever they are, the players or, or whoever are always going to find what is the edge, where are the gaps in the rules, and how can I exploit those, or, or what can I do to mask this or that. Uh, and I'm just going to throw a thought out there that I've had for a while, and, and I'm interested in your commentary on it. You know, should we instead look at this a little differently and say, you know what, trainer is horseman, you do whatever you want. There just has to be full disclosure of all medications that are in use, their levels, and we're going to violate you when we find something that's unreported, first of all. And second of all, we, the state veterinarians, are just going to review your medication regimens and we're going to publish them and, you know, let the, let the public decide, um, you know, what's appropriate or, or not. Um, it's just a, a thought I've had about it. I'm curious what you th- what you think about that. If it's stupid, just go ahead and say so. No, I wouldn't say that. I've, I've thought about it myself over time, but it, the problem is what you know. When you say full disclosure, you can do whatever you want. I mean that that would bring in uh, the use of uh, potentially the use of narcotics, and that would just create an uproar uh, from the obvious uh, areas of. Uh, the, the country that you wouldn't want, you know, they would just go ballistic over it. I've just seen, I've seen what the kinds of things that they did to greyhound racing, and uh, this, this would be too difficult. So then you'd have to scale back. You'd have to say you can't use certain kind of drugs 
maybe class ones and twos, and you can have whatever you want in class threes, which some of that includes some uh, steroids. And, uh, you know, the word steroid just, you know, automatically just, Scary. you know, well, it, it blows up some minds, yeah. you know. And, uh, and I just, I don't see how it can be done. I think, I think they're doing the best they can uh, under the circumstances right now, uh, trying to keep the, the, the amount of drugs in use uh, known to people, and then they just test and test and test for them. Um, I, I do agree that the medication regimens should be reviewed by state, state veterinarians. The, the, the problem that comes into play there is money. It's always money. States just don't have the kind of money that they want to plow into that type of a uh, situation. And uh, so here in Arizona, we had we had a state veterinarian, but he you know he had a job, but we didn't have enough money to hire anybody beyond him. Uh, at one point, I did hire an extra person when I was a director, who kind of oversaw a bunch of this stuff, and he was a vet. But uh, but even then, it was it was more after the fact type thing. Uh, uh, it's a medications and drugs are always going to be a difficult part of the game. Uh, I think you see it even today, even as much as they try to control it, states like New Mexico still, you know, it's beyond their control for some reason. I don't understand why. Hmm. New York does pretty well what they do, what they do. Um, I don't know, because they have people who come down hard on, on some of these guys. But uh, I don't know. It's a, it's a tough business. All I can say is I think that they're doing the best they can at this stage of the game. I'd like it to be a little bit tougher, but you need more money, and nobody has the money, and nobody wants to come up with the money. Bill, let's talk about another difficult uh, aspect of the sport. I don't know how much you followed the racing at Saratoga this summer, but uh, the stewards, I would say, by all accounts, had uh, what can be called at best a difficult summer, Uh, mysterious rulings and and non-rulings and and one thing that i'm curious about is what is a steward watching during the running of a race are they watching the same feed that we are are they watching instead through binoculars very closely are they watching multiple feeds at the same time what goes on in the steward's box during the running of a race well, my experience is that, you know, the three of us would be there. We'd be watching the race. One person would watch the race live with the binoculars, and the other two would be watching the cameras uh, uh, and following the race on, on, the, uh, on the TV screens and, uh, you know, so that we'd have, you know, multiple points of view, I guess. And uh, I got so used to watching the television screen, it became very difficult for me to go back and watch the race with the with the binoculars was, and watch it for years that way, but then it became like secondhand. It's like watching a hockey game now. I can't watch a live hockey game mm-hmm. anymore. I have to see it on TV. You know, mm-hmm. uh, your your eyes just get attuned to something. But uh, you know, so the the object being that you would be watching from different angles and uh, come to a conclusion of what happened. I you know I I saw you had mentioned the Saratoga thing and I had. Just this week, read a column that Mike Watchmaker wrote, and um, where he complained about the number of different inconsistent calls that there were, and uh, that 
kind of astounded me because you're paying probably the, the best, you know, you're paying the best money for, you should be getting the best stewards at, at Saratoga and in New York. And if they're coming up with calls that the, the public can't fathom, then there's a problem. Uh, my whole thing is that we should, as stewards, try to be as consistent as possible uh, throughout the course of a meet. If it's, if it's good in week one, it's got to be good in week six. And uh, you, you can't just take each race and say, well, okay, well, this is a little different from that one. You have to try to fit them all into, you know, one consistent pattern. It, it sounds to me like they had a real problem there this summer, and I, I did not see any of the races, and beyond reading that column, I don't know what happened. Well, uh, full disclosure, Bill, I was on the, the bitter losing end of one of those mysterious decisions. And uh, it struck me, one of the things that struck me was, uh, you know, to their credit, uh, Larry Colmus got on after the decision was made, as, as unpopular as it was, and explained the steward's decision. But in listening to Larry, I never got the sense that he was really all that fired up about, about explaining this decision, because I, I didn't get the sense that he agreed with it. Do you think it would be better if the stewards were required to air their explanation, particularly, let's say, because I assume sometimes there's a two-to-one vote with the three of you up there, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, oh, yeah. Do you think that would help? I think the stewards should explain the decision uh, as soon as possible, and I don't think it's fair to funnel it through an announcer. We did that at uh, Surf Paradise and even in uh, Yavapai Downs the last year or two that they were up there. Because as you said, uh, sometimes the uh, the announcer wouldn't necessarily agree with the call, but it's also, you know, when it goes through one extra person, they may not explain it as well as the people that actually made the decision. So I, I really think that the stewards should explain their decision to the public as soon as possible after the race. And there's, there's usually about 10 or 15 minutes you can make a one-minute explanation as to why you made that decision. As for split decisions, I'm, I'm not in favor of, uh, of making that known to the public. Uh, the stewards have to work together, and uh, you start splitting them up before the public, then it, it makes it more difficult for them to, to be together. There's been times when I've been the third, you know, the, the odd person out in the decision, and you know I've said to them, okay, just for the sake of uh, moving forward, I'm going to go on board with you all and we'll have a three zero decision so that we'll move forward. I don't think that it's in the best interest of racing or or the steward stand to uh, to announce that particular decision, the split decision. Um, you know, because so much of it is subjective I and mean, you know, I could be wrong, you know. Well, I suppose if the stewards were on TV airing their explanation and one guy was sitting there shaking his head, that would not be, that would not be a good look, right? <laughs> no, it should be like the chief steward. Uh, uh, or if the chief steward uh, was the odd person out, then maybe he can pass it on to the person who made the decision. But uh, I I think if you were more if you were more consistent in, in your calls, it would be much easier to make those explanations. So that, as you said, you might... You know, if you saw a bad call and you were the victim of it, but you knew that they made the same call three weeks ago, then you wouldn't feel as bad about it. It's when three weeks ago they did one thing and today they did something else and it doesn't make any sense to you or the rest of the public. So, so Bill, you've obviously acted in official capacities, you know, in the sport uh, throughout your life. How has that impacted your enjoyment of the sport one way or the other? 
It has. Uh, it's funny, you know. The, uh, once I moved into the regulation area back in the the nineties, um, you know, one thing you couldn't do is if you worked for the state of Arizona, you couldn't place a wager. So that takes, you know, some of the enjoyment of the game. At least it did for me. And because uh, you, you, know, you like to bet from time to time, especially if you saw something you like and you've been following, but once that happened, then it, you, the next thing you know is you, you start not paying attention to the races themselves. And when you start not paying attention to the races, you kind of lose the interest in, you know, why you got involved in it in the first place. I mean, I still watch the races, I still enjoy the races, but I don't have that same interest that I used to have. And uh, uh, it, uh, it did, and it, uh, to the point now where... I, uh, up until a couple, about a year ago, I, I stopped even paying attention to racing altogether. It just, uh, I had lost my interest. But in the last year or two, I've started to pick it up again. And uh, now that I'm retired and I've got some time, I've, uh, you know, I've been following the, the national racing for openers. But um, it, uh, it takes a while. But yeah, and as you get older, sometimes you lose some of your enthusiasm for anything. For a lot of things. Uh, yeah, like football. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's, let's actually, that's a good segue, but let's talk a little bit about football. Let's talk about Buffalo football. Um, and, of course, you know I'm an AFC East guy myself, or an old AFL guy, so, you know, these names are familiar to, as familiar to me as they are to you. But let's say you got one quarterback for one game. Do you go with Jack Kemp or Joe Ferguson? Well, that's a that's a toughie. Uh, I think Joe Ferguson never got the uh, the acclaim that he deserved. He was really a good quarterback, uh, and uh, but Kemp won the two championships. And well, what some people would say was a lesser competition, but he did win them. He had a way of finding the right person at the right time. My brother and I back in the day. Uh, uh, there was a big argument in Buffalo as to who would be the quarterback, Jack Kemp or Daryl Monica there. And uh, my brother said, well, what did they pay for Kemp? And the, the AFL had a, uh, had a rule where you could uh, claim somebody off of waivers for 50 bucks, And that's what they did. They got him from the Chargers for 50 bucks, And my brother said that's what he was worth, 50 bucks. But he won two championships, so I would say Jack Kemp. 50 bucks. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. yeah. It was different. <laughs> Well, let's go. Uh, let's go with one J.K. versus another J.K. Then Jack Kemp versus Jim Kelly. Well, Jim Kelly was a Hall of Famer, and uh, he was a great, great, great quarterback. Uh, made a lot of my Sunday afternoons happy for a lot of years, and uh, you know, went to four Super Bowls. Should have won one of them, anyways. And if they had played the game right, they might have won that last one. But uh, one bad fumble and it cost them. They had the lead and they had the drive going. And, but uh, Kelly was a great uh, was a great quarterback. And uh, just as an aside, I think that you know Dan Marino gets a lot of uh, accolades, and they both came out in the same class. And Marino had all the records, but Jim Kelly was a better quarterback, and uh, in my mind, and uh, they're both in the Hall of Fame and uh, deservedly so. Well, you know, you know how I feel about that Buffalo Bill team. I was, a, I was a big fan because the Patriots were just terrible back then. And I always said, I always tell people to this day that if they had won that first Super Bowl against the Giants, they would have won four in a row, not lost four in a row. I think that was uh, 
psychologically, I think that was a little devastating to them, unfortunately. Yeah, well, they didn't win. You know, I was, after four years, you kind of got used to uh, them being there, and they, they did give you a lot of thrills along the way. And like I said, made a lot of Sunday afternoons happy. So as time moves on, you, you kind of forget about the fact you lost all of them. So, Bill, let's switch positions here and go to running back. You've got one running back, one game, and I'm going to give you multiple choices here just to make it tough for you. All right. You got OJ, Thurman Thomas, Fred Jackson, Joe Cribbs, Marshawn Lynch, or Cookie Gilchrist. You, don't, you can only pick one. Who are you going to go with? <laughs> I'll move it down to two right now. One's the Hall of Famer, and that's Thurman. And the other is uh, Cookie Gilchrist. A lot of people didn't uh, quite understand how good he was when he came to Buffalo. But he was a phenomenal running back. And uh, much in the same vein as Jim Brown was with the uh, with the Cleveland Browns, uh, Cookie could carry a team when uh, if he had a good running back with him and Ray Carlton also. But, you know, if you're going to go for one guy one game, it'd have to be Thurman. He almost won the Super Bowl with him. And, uh, and uh, he should have been the MVP even in the loss. But Thurman Thomas, I think a friend of mine once told me he was uh, the best running back in his generation for a number of years. And uh, I think he, uh, you know, he was a warrior, like, he, like oh. I was told. No, he nearly single-handedly won that Super Bowl. Never never will forget that. Um, you know, you mentioned Cookie, and uh, so i got to wrap this up by asking you about a, uh, what's your best – Memory, what's your best story about the old War Memorial Stadium or what I know Buffalo natives like to call the, the rock pile? Yeah, the you old know, rock pile. Well, you know, I worked in that place right from, oh, about uh, 1961 or 62 covering baseball games as an usher. And uh, I, uh, you know, there's a lot of good baseball players that came through that uh, stadium. It was, it was set up in this fashion in which the, the Coliseum was set up in uh, L.A. when the Dodgers moved out there in the late 50s. So you had a short right field fence, and even out to right center, I mean, it was easy. And, uh, and then left field was way out, and, you know, it was very difficult to hit a home run into left field. And it just from the baseball end of it, there was, uh, I, I saw Boog Paul came through. A lot of these guys that uh, played on the Orioles championship teams came through Rochester, and uh, Boog came through a couple times. And he just whacked them right out of the stadium, right up and over that uh, uh, the, fen- the fence and the, uh, the barrier that uh, was in the back of the stadium. I mean, it was just—it was an easy shot, but nobody did it as often as good as he did. And one year, Richie Allen came and played for um, I think Arkansas. I can't remember who they were. Obviously, the Phillies. He hit a ball so far into left field. I think they're still looking for it. Went right into the, the the stands where nobody even sat. I mean, it was so far in there. So the baseball uh, was Richie Allen and, and Boog Powell, and uh, football that was what it was known for. I um, well, it was, I was there in in the mid '60s. They they used to allow the people to bring uh, their own six packs into the games. or multiple six packs. They just didn't have the facilities to uh, to sell a lot of beer. And so uh, one night they had a few too many, you know, midway through the third or fourth quarter, and they just started raining beer cans down on the bills, and uh, empty ones, of course, and they'd never control a full one. Uh, but uh, that was one of the uh, 
the, the, the football things that I recall well. And the other one I remember was in um, 1968. The Bills went 1-12 or 1-13, something. The only game they won all year was against the Jets. And uh, they sacked uh, Joe Namath five times. They just battered him all over the field. Well, lo and behold, the Jets went on to win the Super Bowl <laughs> that year. And, uh, and those, because of that, only one, their only one win got to draft O.J. Simpson. So, was, uh, <laughs> That's great. That's great. But uh, I had a lot of good memories about the War Memorial and the rock pile, and it was uh, hopefully, hopefully I'll keep them for a long time. I hope so, Bill. Well, Bill, listen, thanks. You've been a great guest. Uh, as a token of my appreciation, I'm going to dip into my goodie grab bag of gift certificates here, and I'm going to award you with... Here we go. It's a $25 gift certificate to Hangarer's Department Store in downtown Buffalo. How about that? Yeah, well, that, that'll work for me. I just have to find it. <laughs> All right. Hey, Bill, listen. No, this has been terrific. Thank you. Those are some great stories, and I really appreciate you doing this. Okay. You take care. You too. All right. We'll move on now to this week's Big Score segment. I'm glad to say that tonight's big score story comes from one of our social media followers. His name is Bill Mentes, and he told us via Facebook recently that years ago, as he was going through his Kentucky Derby preparations, he began to focus in on a horse that had not won his last start, but had, to Bill's eye, galloped out after the wire very well in that prep race. The jockey had subsequently expressed some confidence that the extra distance of the Derby would suit the horse well also. So Bill took a flyer and fired in a futures bet on the horse at 50-1. to 1. In addition, there was another horse coming into the race that he liked. That one was coming into the derby off of a losing effort as well, but he arguably needed that race as a prep, as he had missed a good deal of training due to an illness leading into that prep race. When the gates opened in Louisville for that year's derby, that horse went off at odds of 72-1. to 1. So the astute observers among you may have guessed by now that contributor Bill Mentes is telling us that he hit the exacta of all time in the 2005 Kentucky Derby. By boxing up Giacomo in closing argument, Bill walked away with $9,800 on a $2 investment. Cheers for Bill. That's a, that's a great big score. And I guess that's a great argument for number one, paying attention to the gallop outs of these horses, of any horses after the wire that you think may have experienced trouble or anything like that. Um, watch how they gallop out and see if they finish full of energy and, of course, pay attention to the comments of connections leading into the race. And the other thing is, particularly when it comes to the Derby, don't discount a non-winning finish in one of the Derby prep races. Those are great lessons, and as I said, that's a great big score story. Thank you, Bill. And like Bill, please don't hesitate to share your big score stories with us. You can do that like Bill did on our Can Do Facebook page, or you can email us at CanDoBillD at gmail.com. That's C-A-N-D-O. B-I-L-L-D at gmail.com. Thanks again, Bill, for sharing that, and we hope to hear from more of you soon. So we're going to turn this week to uh, our guest handicapper, Kelly Smith-Lawless. Kelly is a contest-playing veteran who was qualified for the National Handicapping Championship on three separate occasions. Kelly is actually going to be one of our interview guests later this season, but she joins us this week to tell us about a race that she has handicapped for us in the upcoming weekend. Kelly, what race did you pick? What are you thinking about in terms of contenders and wagering strategy? Okay. Hi, everybody. I uh, was looking for a, a nice price horse. Since we all love price horses. We can't stand chalk. Mm-hmm. And so as a consequence, um, I decided to uh, hedge my bets. I, I looked at my uh, sheets, my Kelly Pex numbers. 
and I ran numbers for Belmont, uh, Laurel, uh, uh, Keeneland, and Santa Anita. And one of the ones that really popped out at me uh, that also had other angles I liked was the seventh race at Laurel Park. It's a little uh, turf starter handicap. It's just a small $60,000 purse, uh, mile and an eighth turf. And uh, what intrigued me on this particular race, uh, besides the uh, fact that the, 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 my sheets gave the best number to the, the horse I'm going to talk about, uh, and that would be uh, Cannon's Roar. Uh, and this horse uh, has a lot of angles that I really love. It's the uh, number eight horse. Okay. And the thing that intrigues me the most is all of the changes. I think the horse might be a little dizzy uh, with all of this, but uh, the, the trainer, uh, Dale Capilano, um, uh, claimed this horse back in uh, August. And the horse was only running um, sprint races. This will be his first uh, route. Um, not only is he getting his first route, but uh, he's getting blinkers for the first time. Hmm. Uh, it'll be the first route to claim. Uh, but what I think is, is most intriguing here is that, <clears throat> you know, with all of these different changes, this is the one horse that uh, one of my other favorite angles is horse for the course. You know, he has done quite well uh, compared to the others in the field uh, in Laurel. Um, by uh, having two starts uh, on the turf and coming in first and third. Uh, but I think, what again, because of all of the different changes and also the angles for Dale, Dale has, uh, you know, is, is really pretty good with adding blinkers uh, and first off the claim, but he's also pretty good with uh, routes, 19% win, Love the horse in the money win percent, uh, in, in the money percentage as uh, 60%. Uh, and, uh, so I think with all of these changes, which is pretty much my favorite angle to look for, you know, whether it's surface or distance or blinkers or other, uh, likely changes, uh, even, uh, jockeys, although for some strange reason, he's keeping, uh, um, a Rosario on, on this horse. Uh, but I think, uh, this, this leads to be pretty intriguing and I, and I really wanted to provide a really cool price horse. Uh, and I thought uh, 12 to 1 seemed really, really juicy. Uh, well, uh, you know, the, the main competition here is obviously going to be uh, here's to Mike, uh, um, Maggie's Kiernan's horse uh, with McCarthy aboard, uh, as well as uh, potentially, um, I think, No Knock Raid uh, with Edgar Prado aboard. <clears throat> But uh, because of all the changes, um, and, I, and I think that, uh, you know, Dale does a really good, tar uh, good job with his uh, first off the claim. And I really love the, the steady works that he's been putting into this horse. It cracked me up that he, he put a four-year-old into the gate uh, for a gate work. Uh, and he started <laughs> off, nice, you know, breezily, and then, uh, and then it's changed to uh, handily. And, uh, you know, and I also like the uh, long works that he's been doing, uh, five furlongs and six furlongs. Yes, this is a crazy bet, uh, but, uh, you know, again, I, I wanted something uh, pricey uh, to be intriguing and also um, uh, plausible, uh, which I think this particular uh, horse offers. So I'm going to play him as a triple. I'm going to obviously put him on top and then uh, put some of the uh, lesser horses underneath. Uh, and uh, just hope for the best. 
No, I, I, I like that one, Kelly. That's uh, there's a lot of interesting things there. First of all, uh, you know, Del Capuano. I, I, I really don't follow the Mid Atlantic circuit as much, but when I have, I kind of always thought of him as more of a of a dirt trainer, and I was surprised to see how good, if I'm recollecting correctly, his turf statistics were because I just didn't think of him as a turf trainer. But I agree with you. When you see a good trainer, especially off the claim, make a bunch of changes, stretches them out, adds blinkers, puts them on the, you know, uh, on a, on a turf route, like I said, stretches them out, adding the blinkers, et cetera. And then those works too, um, you know, a gate work by a four-year-old, that's a good call. I love when I see, uh, horses coming off a layoff and the trainer puts a long work into them. And I see two six furlong works in here and then a sharp, uh, five furlong work, um, and that's a that's a that that's a nice catch, and and uh, I think probably we'll get every bit of that value. I would imagine. Well, that's my hope. You know, uh, when I was looking at all the other races to try to find something fun, you know, there were there were changes. You know, the best I could come up with was four to one. I'm like, ah, no good. So uh, this one just seems to be fun. Well, so that- I'm, I'm looking forward to playing. Uh, I'm going to put him on my list as well. Listen, Kelly, that's great. Thanks very much. Um, we'll see how this week's picks come out, and uh, we appreciate you you know, taking a stand and, and, and looking at something. Um, whether the picks work or not, I think it's more important that people understand all the different methodologies people go through to come to their picks, and that's the whole goal of this mm-hmm. thing, to just to give different insights into how people work. And, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. Here in the Telegraph, for a bear, I'll fight. I hear his foot's all right. A boss at all, the horse, a big red. Last night, I know it's violent.